Well, this morning we come back to our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking particularly at the piercing words of Christ that are found to us, found for us in verses 27 and 28 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, needless to say, this is a passage like few others that penetrates right to the heart of so many of the corruptions of our society. We could take really all morning to establish and try to demonstrate the problem of sexual sin and lust in our society. We could give lots of statistics about the sexualization of culture all around us. I could talk about the plague of pornography and how it rots the very core of our culture and how it destroys families and rips apart marriages, leaving spouses wrestling with feelings of inadequacy and rejection and abandonment. We could talk about how it destroys the bonds of trust and fosters all kinds of deception. Or we could talk about the impact of sexualization on teenagers, on young boys and the domination that that, uh, pornography has with their heart or on young girls and uh, the grip of inadequacy that they feel as they're constantly comparing themselves to a perception of an image on a screen that they could never live up to. The mental health fallout is monumental as our, our generation that's now upcoming is burdened and sapped of vitality by all kinds of fear and guilt and shame. I could try to drag out all the filth that's going on in society, first on websites, then streaming services, and song lyrics, and social media. We could do all of that and spend our time doing that, but I don't think it's necessary because I'm quite sure that everyone here is well aware of all of that stuff. In fact, I'm sure for most of you, it is a daily battle. You battle it in your homes, you battle it in your families, you battle it in your own life, in your own heart. Just a couple of stats, Covenant Eyes website uh, says that one in five mobile searches is for pornographic material. More than 70% of men, more than 35% of women say that they regularly visit porn sites each month. It's patently obvious to every one of us. We're in a sex-crazed culture. We live in a culture that has sexualized almost everything, and it pushes the boundaries of perversion and lewdness to broader and broader circles and to younger and younger audiences. Sexual sin is not only tolerated in any form, but by anyone with anyone, at any place, at any time, in any way. And it's not just tolerated. We would even say it's glamorized. It is normalized. It is accepted. So much so that 
Now, 45% of all people in the United States say that porn is not bad for society. And when you get to younger generations, the numbers are staggering. 90% of youth say that when they're talking to friends or in conversation with friends about this subject, they are either encouraging accepting, or at least neutral about the subject. In other words, there's almost no pushback. There's almost no resistance anymore. After decades of fighting, there's almost complete capitulation to the world on the subject of lust among, among younger generations, really among all of us. The most popular shows on uh, our TVs are those which are emphasizing sexuality. The Fifty Shades trilogy in the past few years grossed over a billion dollars. And 68% of the viewership were women. This is a society that finds itself absolutely, as I said, capitulating on this subject. And yet study after study shows that the effects of all this sexualization has led to massive amounts of discontentment, disconnectedness from relationships, women particularly feeling dehumanized, and as we are all very well aware, an explosion of claims of sexual harassment and exploitation all around us. And we shouldn't be shocked, although people act shocked all the time. They can't seem to understand why there would be such a massive tidal wave of this kind of demeaning and offensive behavior, while at the same time they spend billions and billions of dollars year after year, all aimed at constantly stirring people's sexual fantasies. It's almost as if people have taken the insights of Jesus' words here and turned them on their head. Having realized what it is that actually generates this kind of perversion and activity, they have struck right at the heart of every man, woman, and child in America, debasing them from the inside out. Well, just assuredly as... Society is moving fast and strongly to one direction. Jesus is moving in the exact opposite. Or Jesus is found, I should say, in the exact opposite direction. He's explaining here in these verses the issue of sexual immorality, not just from the aspect of its external corruption, but even its internal source. And with these two clear and simple and powerful statements, he clarifies God's design, not only for sexual and moral purity that guards marital purity, but that which undergirds society and even personal dignity. And he begins in verse 27 by first of all addressing The basic prohibition that the Scripture gives against, we might say, the external act of adultery. 
Just like he did back in verse 21, he begins with this sort of statement, you've heard that it said, making reference back to the Old, Old Testament, making reference back to the Ten Commandments. And in this case, particularly the Seventh Commandment, which is found in Exodus 20, verse 14, or Deuteronomy 5, verse 18, he talks about this prohibition that is well known among the Jews, and really in, even in our own day, is still remembered on the hearts of many people as a part of the Decalogue. He references that and names it without really kind of getting into any more detail, but we know this clear principle spelled out not only there in the Decalogue, but even uh, even expounded later by Moses in Deuteronomy 22 and 23, where he goes on to define all the other forms of sexual immorality and sexual sin that fall under this broad prohibition, this broad category of adultery and sexual sin. He talks about sexual sin among those who are married, sexual sin among those who are unmarried, all the various forms that these kinds of sexual sin might take within society. And then he prescribes some of the severest punishments for these kinds of behaviors within Jewish society. Usually with the death by stoning as the ultimate end of all these things. This was a sin that the Lord took very, very seriously, obviously, here in the Old Testament. And all of that, of course, is because the Lord takes the institution of marriage very seriously. He presents the institution of marriage from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, as something that he created. He declares that he is the one who created this bond between Adam and Eve. And not only that, out of this bond that he made for Adam and Eve, he declares that every marriage subsequent to that would be the work of God. Every person who enters into a covenant of marriage, whoever they are who take their vows and make their commitments... They should not mistake that as though the marriage was simply something of their own doing. It is, as the Bible declares, a work of God. Marriage is a work of God. It is something that he says he has joined together. For this reason, when someone violates the covenant of marriage, God makes the punishment very severe. As I said originally, if you violated this covenant through some sort of sexual sin, marriage was, was effectively terminated because the guilty party was stoned to death. The innocent party was thus free from their original covenant and presumably free to remarry. Later on, however, in fact, even as the covenant was being inscribed on tablets of stone, there was rampant sexual sin within the camp of Israel as they danced around the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so God, understanding that this kind of behavior would have mandated massive, massive death tolls on Israel, God, in His mercy, 
allowed a provision, or we might say made a concession, not according to his original design, but according to his mercy, where he didn't require death in all these circumstances, but he actually allowed divorce. But you shouldn't mistake that as somehow some detraction from the seriousness of the offense of sexual sin within marriage. In fact, those who've suffered the aftermath of marital unfaithfulness can tell you, they can testify to you about the seriousness of it, about the devastating nature of this kind of sin. Thankfully, by God's mercy and by God's grace, even this kind of sin can be overcome. By the power of the gospel that heals people's hearts, God can provide forgiveness. God can actually produce forgiveness in your heart. He can show us pathways to begin to slowly rebuild trust that's been broken. But the prohibition itself just underscores the uniqueness and sacredness of marriage. The penalties for it that were originally prescribed just underscore the uniqueness and sacredness of this marriage covenant. And it underscores even the sacredness of sexual activity within marriage. Hebrews chapter 13 in the New Testament upholds this. The writer says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In other words, he's saying God looks at marriage as honorable. God created it and everything that it contains as honorable. He not only created marriage and ordained marriage, but he ordained the joys of intimacy within marriage. And so in God's eyes, the marriage bed is pure. In God's eyes, the gift of intimacy is pure. It's designed by him. It was designed by him in the perfection of the Garden of Eden as a gift that he gave to humanity as something to be delighted in. Sexual activity is essentially a pure activity. It's an undefiled activity. It's a gift, as I said. And when it's enjoyed within God's design of marital faithfulness, God's designed it to be a great source of blessing. But as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, that what is essentially pure in and of itself can become defiled. It can become impure, it can become stained, it can become tainted and tarnished and contaminated and foul if it's pursued outside the boundaries of God's design. All of this is the result of sexual sin. It's the result of adultery. Sexual sin is distortion of God's gift of marital intimacy. And just like we saw a couple weeks ago when we looked at the issue of anger back in verses 21 through 26, and we saw how anger is essentially a self-centered distortion of God's justice. Anger, as we noted, is an attempt to place yourself in God's role as the one who brings retribution, as the one who brings about your concept of 
punishments and rewards. It is your attempt to place yourself, we might say, at the center of God's system of justice rather than placing God's truth and God's holiness and God himself at the center of God's system of justice. Anger assumes an essentially self-centered view of right and wrong where everything, your sense of what is just and what is right, bends toward your own self-interest so much so that you leave no room for the wrath of God. You leave no room for God to work. You take everything or you want to take everything in your own hands. You want to make it right by your own will. Well, in the same way, lust and sexual sin is a self-centered distortion of God's original design for sexual intimacy. It takes the thing that God created for your blessing and your good. It takes it and it orients it completely around yourself so that through adultery, through fornication, through all these forms of sexual sin, you can pursue your own desires without any commitments to the other person or very weak commitments at best. You pursue sexual desires without any promises, without any guarantees, without any responsibilities that go along with the bonds of marriage. And all of this All of this takes the true beauty and the true joy out of the act that God designed. And it replaces it with nothing but a cheap and momentary thrill. This is why people who engage in sexual sin inevitably end up feeling more empty than they did before. Because sexual activity without the bonds of commitment in marriage as God designed cannot fulfill the act of sexual intimacy as God intended it. It cannot. And so God calls us to reject this self-centered, self-oriented view of sexuality. In fact, Not only did he forbid it in the seventh commandment of the Old Testament, but even in the tenth commandment, God forbids sexual sin under the category of coveting. He says in Deuteronomy 5.21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So God, recognizing that people will not only selfishly violate their commitments and vows they made in the marriage covenant by committing adultery, Also, he warned that there was this selfishness that might even creep into your heart. He understood that this would all begin in your heart, and he labels it or he deals with it under this issue of coveting. Now, we know what coveting is. Coveting is essentially that wrongful desire for something without due regard for the rights or the claims that someone else might have on it. It is a desire for something without due regard for the rights or the privileges or the claims that someone else may have. Or we might say it's a, it's a desire that disregards the interest, disregards the concerns, disregards the rights, and disregards the hurt that might come to someone else when you claim something or someone. 
It is the demand for what someone else has without any regard for their interest. It's essentially self-interest. And God addresses the issue of sexual desire under the category of coveting because he understood that this is the nature of sexual sin. He understood that it is essentially a self-centered, self-consumed pursuit, that it begins in in the selfishness of our hearts. Now, this is why when Jesus comes to this issue, he not only addresses the external act of adultery, but he presses He presses the issue inward, toward the inward desire. He says, not only have you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her, already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is where Jesus moves beyond the the picture of the external act to really his second point, which is the internal heart of adultery. And the point he's making is not trying to take away or not trying to mute or not trying to to, uh, distract from the prohibition of adultery. In fact, he's not even trying to add to this Old Testament prohibition. As we saw a number of weeks ago, Jesus says in verse 17, He didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't come to undermine the law. He didn't come to separate you from the law. He didn't come to do any of that. In fact, what he wants to do is he actually wants to fulfill the law. He wants to take the law in its truest meaning, in its truest intent, and he wants to press that issue. And so just like he did with the issue of anger in showing the full scope of the meaning of the law in the Old Testament when it talked about things like murder, here he wants to show God's true concern goes beyond just acts that are forbidden in terms of sexual sin, and the true concerns go to your heart. Sin, in other words, is not just about your actions, it's about your desires. And the Old Testament understood this, and the Old Testament pointed to this. Now, the problem, of course, is that most Jews, even from the Old Testament up to the time of Christ, all the way down to our own day, like most religious people throughout all the ages, they didn't understand. They misinterpreted. Jesus will later tell them that they have become consumed with cleaning the outside of the cup, while the inside remains filthy. It makes no sense. It does no good. I mean, if you continue to, to use and drink from a cup that is filthy on the inside, it doesn't matter how much it sparkles on the outside, it doesn't matter how, much, how good it looks on the shelf, it doesn't matter how many compliments it may bring, if you continue to drink from a cup that is filthy on the inside, you're going to make yourself sick again and again and again, you're going to make yourself sick. If you're going to clean any part of the cup, your primary focus should be on cleaning the inside of the cup. The Jews didn't understand this. And so they continued through their life drinking the filth of their outward sort of 
uh, outwardly clean morality that was inside full of dead men's bones, and they were sick. They were sick people with sick hearts and sick minds. And so throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is pressing the point. He's pressing you back to the true intent of the law, which is to show you your need for internal cleansing. The purpose of the law wasn't to just give you a guide to sort of clean up the outside of your life. The purpose of the law was to point you to the need for a cleansing on the inside. It was to point you to the need for a new heart. And so in this issue of adultery, Jesus is pressing the point that the issue is not just the outward act. The issue is the inward corruption. It is the inward desire of your heart. As we've already mentioned a number of times, and Jesus will return to this in Matthew fifteen nineteen, when he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality with theft and false witness and slander and all these other things. These are the things, Jesus says, that defile you. And they don't come from outside of you, they come from inside of you. Well, here in Matthew 5, 28, Jesus is pressing the point. Sexual sin, sexual immorality is not simply a matter of your outward conduct. It's a matter of your heart. It arises from your heart. It arises from the self-oriented, self-centered focus of your life and heart. It comes from your coveting, discontent, self-absorbed heart. And so Jesus is pressing home the point of the law. These outward sins point to inward problems. And those inward problems exist even before the outward behavior manifests itself. In other words, the outward sin, whether it's murder or adultery or, uh, or thief, uh, thievery or whatever it might be, it exists in your heart before it ever manifests itself in your behavior. It begins in the heart. And so when Jesus is talking about looking at a woman with lustful intent, he's not suggesting that the look causes you to sin. He's making the point that the sin causes you to look. It's not the look that causes you to sin. It is the sin that causes you to look. In fact, it's important to understand the language, I think, that Jesus uses here because he's very specific when he speaks about this. He, he uses a purpose clause. He's, in other words, he's not talking about just simply noticing a woman. He's not even really even talking about looking at a woman lustfully. He's talking about looking for the purpose of lusting. The Greek word there is pros, which is a, a, part, a preposition of purpose. So it speaks about intent, which the ESV brings out in its translation. You're looking at a woman with the intent or the purpose of lusting. So this is not we would say the fleeting look. It's not the incidental glance. It's really not even a reference to, uh, you might say, a natural appreciation for the attractiveness or beauty of another person. He's speaking about the imagination or the, intentful, or the intent purpose of sexual relationship. 
He even uses here a present participle, which emphasizes the continuous nature of this look. Charles Quarles defines this as the lingering look or the sensual stare. MacArthur translates it as the repeated gaze. R.T. France says it's not referring to the initial attraction, but the purpose, the looking in order to desire sexual relations. Or if you want to think about it another way, you could sort of reverse this a bit. And you could say there's a difference in the ways and the motives with which a woman would dress herself. She could dress herself in an appropriate way to enhance her attractiveness, to, uh, to sort of uh, uh, bring uh, what the Scripture calls the glory of humanity. The scripture says uh, women are the glory of humanity. And there's a way for a woman to highlight those aspects of her attractiveness and spend time preparing herself in that way. Or they can dress themselves with the intent or the purpose to stir unhealthy desire, to seduce. They could dress themselves with the intent to stir people's hearts with ungodliness. Jesus' focus here is on that issue of motive, that issue of intent. And so it goes beyond just simply recognizing someone's beauty. It goes to the point of wanting to use them for your own selfish goals. And the point of all this is that the battle against this kind of sin cannot be limited to just external acts. The battle against this sin cannot simply take place on the outside. There have been those who've thought that through the years. There have been people who've read the words of Jesus about looking on a woman in lust and they've concluded That the only way to battle this sin is to separate themselves, to separate themselves from the presence of women, to to sort of hold themselves up in a monastery or completely remove themselves from the world. There have been those outside of Christianity who have concluded that the way to to, to do battle with this kind of sin is to force women to completely cover themselves up. But ultimately, the solution to the problem is not external because the problem itself is not external. It's internal. And it's a battle that has to begin and it has to take place primarily on the inside. In some ways, it's like battling a physical disease. I mean, you can spend all of your time trying to offset the symptoms of the disease, trying to address things like uh, fevers or coughs or dizziness or sweating or aches or whatever it might be. And, And there are medicines that you could manufacture that might mitigate some of that. It might even temporarily uh, hide some of those symptoms. But if the underlying disease or infection is never dealt with, then the symptoms just come back. They just arise again maybe in a more severe way because 
by ignoring the underlying cause. You've just allowed it to grow. And so Jesus is telling you that this issue of adultery has this under or is this underlying disease. Excuse me, the issue of adultery has this underlying disease that precedes it. The issue of an unchecked, lusting heart. That's why many times changing your outward circumstances does little to deal with the issue. People imagine that they can deal with the issue of lust by these external means. They might construct all kinds of rules and laws that they try to follow in order to keep themselves pure, or they might try to separate themselves from the world. They might decide that they're going to sort of renounce all of their entertainment options or whatever it might be. Some people imagine that they're going to get uh, an, uh, an accountability partner and that's going to solve their problem. In the case of married people, some people imagine that a new partner is going to help them with all of this sort of internal churning and turmoil that they have. They believe that they've grown tired of their wife or they've grown tired of their husband and they're plagued by all of these internal desires. And so they imagine that if they could just be with this other person that they're thinking about or they could be with someone like they're imagining, if they could just find a new wife or find a new husband, that they'll finally find the satisfaction that they're looking for. But all of that is a lie because the issues are not external. The issues are internal. And Jesus is telling you that it all originates in your heart, no matter what your external circumstances are, no matter how much you change them, no, how, no matter how many layers that you add on top of all that, no matter how hard you try maybe to find a new spouse, you might temporarily find some relief to your external symptoms, but the internal disease has never been dealt with. Your heart remains the same. You're controlled and consumed by self-centered lust. That's why some people are so surprised. Young people are surprised sometimes. They think that whenever they get married, it's going to solve their problem of pornography, and it doesn't. Because the issue isn't external. It's internal. And so the battle has to begin and it has to take, prime, take place primarily on the inside. Begins on the inside. It starts, of course, with a new heart. It may be that your battle with lust and sexual sin are just the evidence that you need Christ. Your life is a wreck. Your heart is filled with turmoil and shame, and wreckage, and guilt. Uncontrolled lust is just one of the issues that's wreaking havoc in your life. There's bitterness, and contentment, anxiety, and despair, and anger. And all of it points in one direction, that your sin has wrecked your life. And Jesus is telling you, you'll never have hope on the outside until you have a new heart on the inside. Now, of course, the good news in all this is that Jesus is able to give you a new heart. 
He's able to take away your heart of stone. He's able to take away your heart of filth and give you a heart of purity. He can forgive your sins. He can cleanse your conscience. He can make you a whole new creation with a new heart that yearns and strives for purity and righteousness. God can do all that. If you come to Him confessing the mess of your life, confessing that all of your own efforts and all of your own devices haven't solved any of your problems. In fact, they just made them worse. And you come to God admitting all that and you throw yourself at His mercy and give your life to Him, He's able to make you a brand new creation. For some of you, you've already given your life to Christ, but you find yourself fallen back into a pattern of lust. The Lord is here reminding you that the battle, if it's to be won, it has to be won on the inside. In other words, sin is a progression. It begins with attitudes of the heart and the, 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 the battle with sin. If we have to battle sin, it begins in the heart. A heart that forgets its need for Christ. A heart that forgets the place of guilt from which it has come. A heart that forgets to celebrate the depths of God's mercy. A heart that's no longer thankful like it ought to be thankful. A heart that is no longer full of grace like it ought to be full of grace. A heart that begins to view itself as more righteous, more worthy, more deserving than other people around you. A heart that's more concerned about your own needs and your own burdens, about your own fears, your own anxieties, your own hurts. Than you are about all the hurts of other people. And so to battle sin, you have to be, begin battling all those attitudes. You have to begin addressing all of those misplaced priorities. You have to understand that sin is a progression. It begins with those attitudes. It begins with this sort of self-absorbed focus. It gives way to sort of this self Pity, it gives way to fantasies and fixations on taking from others to serve your own self-absorbed ends. And then it begins to plan and it begins to ponder and it begins to research and it it leads to taking steps and preparing the way and secret plans and deceptive cover-ups. All until the time when it can fully act on what it has already participated in hundreds or thousands of times secretly in your mind. By the way, don't mistake Jesus' words here as if the initial sort of lust that he's talking about is as bad as the final act. That would be a gross misinterpretation. Just like we talked about with anger, you would never say that someone who loses their temper ought to be subject to the death penalty. So when Jesus talks about anger being also guilty, just as with murder, he even hinted back in verse 22 to a kind of progression in guilt and progression in penalty. He says, everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. But whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. 
And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So in other words, there's a level of internal anger that certainly makes you guilty, but then when it gives expression to external words of anger and even more and more demeaning words of cursing, then it ought to be matched by increasing levels of punishment. Well, the same thing is true here as Jesus talks about lust and adultery. His point is that they arise from the same issues in the heart. It all begins in the heart. He's not suggesting that everyone who lusts in their heart heart ought to be taken out and stoned according to the penalty of adultery. He's not suggesting that if you uh, find out or hear that your husband has lusted after someone or your wife has lusted after someone that you should run out there and file for divorce. That's not the point of all this. It fails to understand what Jesus is saying. He's not trying to equate these two things on the same plane. This is, as you find throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or particularly in chapter 5, this is hyperbolic language. People sometimes want to pick and choose what they take literally and what they don't so that they can, in some cases, justify their desire for divorce. But it's not Jesus' point. And in fact, you find almost none of those people who read verse 28 so literally wanting to read verse 29, literally. Gouging out their right eye or verse 30, cutting off their right hand. Or or even down in verse 40, they don't want to be so literal when it says that if someone comes and asks for your clothing or any of your other possessions, you're just supposed to give it to them. They don't want to read that quite so literally because they fundamentally understand the hyperbolic language that Jesus is talking about. He's using this strong, severe language to make a strong point. And his point is not that some people are guilty of adultery and you are not. His point is that we are all guilty. That we're all guilty of this. That we're all plagued by the same internal battles, the same sort of selfish and sinful hearts. And that if we want to overcome this sin, we're going to have to begin addressing those issues in our heart. And so a godly heart is going to focus not as much on the external matters, while they may be helpful, and it's certainly helpful to have laws and restrictions and vows and commitments and all those other things, a godly heart is, a godly uh, a person is going to focus on their heart. They're going to be intent on crucifying the self-interest. They're going to be intent on becoming concerned with the interest of others. And specifically, With the issue of lustful looks, instead of letting the physical beauty or the attractiveness of someone else lead you to begin to fantasize and devise or even plan sexual liaisons, the godly heart turns its mind toward true beauty. It fixes its heart on true beauty, which begins with godliness. True beauty, true attractiveness, not only as you might find it in other people, but as you cultivate it 
in your own heart. Godliness in your own heart. That's where you battle this sin. That's where you have to take the fight. That's where you need to begin the examination. That's where you begin with your confessions. That's where you have to slay and crucify all of those things which grip and control you at the issue of your heart, at the level of your internal person. Understanding that God is able to sanctify you. Thankfully, He forgives, He cleanses, He wipes away all of our guilt, and at the same time, He promises us sanctification. It's not a process, unfortunately, that is overnight, but it's a process the Lord takes us on, which He tells us that as we gaze on Him with unveiled faces, we're transformed into the same image of our Savior from one level of glory to the next. God is able, if you begin to retrain your heart, God is able, if you begin to deal with the issues of your heart, He's able to reestablish purity. He's able to reestablish commitment to what is true, to what is God's design. He's able to give you the full blessings and the enrichment that He's intended for you in your marriage. He's he's able to bring about all those things that He has put in place for you according to the beauty of how He's designed marriage. He's able to do it if you look to Him day after day, cultivating true beauty, understanding true beauty, in your heart. Now some of you are here and you hear all this and you recognize that it's a problem. And you also recognize that you have never reached that place where you have given your life in total surrender to Christ. You've cleaned up the outside of the cup but you've never really dealt with the inside of the cup. It has remained Filthy and dirty. Well, we're here to tell you today that God has sent His Savior into the world, not only to provide forgiveness for all the things that you've done, but He sent the Savior into the world in order to give you a new heart, to make you a new creation in Christ. All the bondage to the shame and the guilt and the sin that you feel, Scripture says God can set you free. He can make you a vessel of honor fit for His use. Our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave here the same person. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, we encourage you to not only give your heart to Christ, but we would love, if you would, just to come and share with us how God is working, how you sense that God is drawing you. We mentioned earlier we have our visitor reception at the end of the service down the hallway to the right I'll be there other of our leaders will be there we'd love to have that opportunity to hear what the Lord's doing how he's drawing you and how he's changing you and to share with you even more the work of the Lord in our life and how he can work in yours as well 
Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the mercy that covers over all of our sin. And we're thankful for the grace that pulls us out of the darkness into the light. It is you, O Lord, who sanctify us. It's by setting our gaze, fixing our heart on you that we learn the nature of true holiness, true love, true godliness, true sacrifice, true purpose. Lord, we find that the thing which we want to pursue. We find that the most attractive, the most inspiring, the most gripping thing that we've ever known. Help us to fix our hearts then on Christ, to set our minds above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I pray for us that our hearts would be purified as we look toward Him, that we would not only be vessels fit for Your use, but that we would enjoy all the benefits that You've designed for us, not only in marriage, but in this life. Make us, Lord, pure people. Make us people who not only experience that freedom, but who can boldly proclaim that message of freedom to a world drowning in darkness. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.